0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com forthewild or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for donate.
1: For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate, or support us through Patreon. Hey, For the Wild family, Carter Lou here, presenting the second episode in our Homebound series— Homebound is a selection of curated episodes from the archives intended to share perspective and guidance in the midst of a time of tremendous uncertainty and possibility. We understand that while society appears ripe for transformation, we are also being inundated with information that may feel paralyzing and that also perpetuates a culture of fear. As a response, we offer this series that explores physical, emotional, and spiritual preparedness, self-reliance, and community sovereignty. For our second offering, we're re releasing our conversation with Dr. Rupa Maria on decentralizing the power of healing. As you listen, please take moments of gratitude for the incredible healthcare workers and frontline responders like Dr. Maria who are showing up every single day. Initially aired in January of 2020. This episode reminds us that the blatant neglect for people's well-being amidst this global pandemic is not coincidence or negligence. It's the result of a global system that has historically centered profit over people. Rupa reminds us that the health of the people should be our guiding light in principle. So we ask ourselves the following. How can we begin investing in our own economies of care? why is healthcare for all and the abolition of medical debt and the for-profit medical system absolutely imperative? And most importantly, how can we derive our medicine in relation to one another as we acknowledge that the wellness of self is inextricably connected to the wellness of others? We hope you enjoy this conversation. And now, on to the show.
0: Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Rupa Maria, an associate professor of medicine at UC San Francisco and faculty director of the Do No Harm Coalition, a collective of over 450 health workers committed to addressing structural issues that make health impossible for communities.
2: When someone says, well, how do I get involved in climate justice, you go, show up the next time a Black person is shot by the police. Show up and shut down that city hall. Because that violence towards that Black person is the same violence that removed the Indigenous people from this land. And those people who were on this land knew how to run this land, knew how to be on this land.
0: Dr. Maria has been working to make visible the health issues at the nexus of racism and state violence through her medical work. The Justice Study, National Research Investigating the Health Effects of Police Violence on Black, Brown, and Indigenous Communities, Helping Set Up a Free Community Clinic for the Practice of Decolonized Medicine under Lakota Leadership at Standing Rock, the Mini Wachoni Health Clinic and Farm, and International Outreach with her band Rupa and the April Fishes. She is currently working on a book with author Raj Patel, Looking at the Health Impacts of Colonization and Capitalism. Through her compositions and her band, Rupa and the April Fishes, they create a sound that pulsates with the pluralism of Bay Area culture, celebrating life and the art of resistance through a wide musical palette that pulls from over a decade of playing street parties, festivals, and symphonic concerts through 29 countries with songs in five languages. Under the direction of composer, frontwoman, activist, and physician Rupa, The band creates a live experience which is a manifestation of a world beyond nations where the heart of humanity beats louder than anything that divides us. Well, welcome Rufa. Thank you so much for joining us. And I have to say you have been on my guest wish list for years. So today feels like a gift to be able to be spending this time with you. Thank you so much. I'd like to begin our conversation in recognition of, quote, the body as a map of society's illness, which is a quote of yours I came across in preparation for this interview. And the notion of our bodies as a guidepost for social change is really so powerful. And I'm hoping we can begin with you sharing a bit more about our collective health and what that says about the current state of our society. Why is it necessary to think about, and address health in acknowledgement of social illness?
2: Well, I think that the same sicknesses that are impacting our planet, and by that I mean sort of the root causes of our illnesses, are the same ones that are driving a lot of the diseases that we see as hallmarks of industrialized societies. So these diseases that have at their origin an element of inflammation, um, often chronic inflammation. And so when we look at how we abuse our soil, our water, our air, these things are also manifested in how our, you know, our guts, our heart, our waterways, and our own body and our lungs, how all of these things are impacted. And so I really think that the structures that we're seeing with colonization, and I really say it as like the misunderstanding of the commons, that these things that are necessary for everyone to live that belong into themselves and not to anybody in particular are things that need to be protected and honored and cared for because ultimately when they are not, our bodies suffer. And the structure of society as has been advanced through the Extractive Capitalist Project and the Colonial Imperialist Project around the world Those structures actually target exactly those things, the commons, the soil, the dirt, the land, the water, the air, and our energy.
0: Mm, Thank you, Rupa, for that introduction. Medically speaking, what is chronic stress, anxiety, fatigue, and trauma doing to our bodies? Why must we recognize this as a slow violence?
2: So... The chronic wear and tear of chronic stress, trauma, you can put anxiety in there as well. All of these phenomena drive low patterns of inflammation in our bodies and deplete our bodies of the entities that actually defend our physical systems from the impacts of chronic inflammation. So for example, anxiety, we know now actually alters which microbes can survive in your gut. And the gut microbiome is actually our first and last defense against inflammation. These microbes that live in our gut, which you know we have more cells on and in our body that are not us than are us. Um, so we are more another than we are ourselves, which I find um, poetic and powerful and interesting and so these organisms in our gut actually modulate our immune system they modulate our emotions they modulate our neurologic development and our immune system development and so you know when there is anxiety and stress and trauma these things it affects us down to our very cellular level and when those microbes are depleted in our gut or altered in certain ways that we don't end up having the ones that can protect us from inflammation the inflammation kind of continues and smolders which leaves us vulnerable to all sorts of diseases one of the most interesting things i have found is the relationship of diabetes to inflammatory processes that are related to things like self determinism so you know indigenous groups that have greater sense of autonomy and self determinism are protected from development of type 2 diabetes, which I find totally fascinating. So what is the connection between that decolonizing reality of being able to advance one's own agenda for one's people that isn't dependent on imperialist structures or imperialist permission? And so that to me suggests that there's something deeply going on with how our social systems and our minds and our cosmologies are translated down onto the molecular level of our bodies and interpreted through the cellular communication between those organisms that are absolutely necessary for our life in our microbiome and around our skin inside of us and then our own cells and i think that as the science becomes clearer we'll come to see that these things are in very deep communication not just within our bodies but between our bodies and our surroundings so that you know if we're living in a sterilized soil eating food that has been sterilized by the use of fossil fuel inputs in our food system. So all the synthetic pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers that we use in our food system widely in conventional agriculture completely destroy the life of the soil, the vibrancy, uh, the fertility, and the microbiology of the soil. So these systems are all operating at the same time and they're interrelated. And I think This is what climate change is showing us. This is what it's bringing to the forefront is that you actually can't talk about diabetes without talking about what's happening to the soil, without talking about the built environment, without talking about the toxic exposures, without talking about the violence towards black, brown, poor, and indigenous people that is a part of the engine of this society. And so to remove any of these pieces from each other, you miss actually seeing the whole thing. And so that's why this systems- level thinking is crucial for actually obtaining the correct diagnosis. Without the correct diagnosis, we will simply be offering insulin to the disease to the patient you know whose pancreatic cells are not producing enough insulin, rather than seeking the question like, why are so many people's pancreatic cells pooping out on them? What is driving this? And so that is what I'm interested in is. What is driving this and how can we create solutions that will decentralize the power of healing, which is truly to decolonize, is to empower people's healings through multiple and local modalities where they are involved in structural change that makes these diseases rampant. And so that's really what I'm interested in is the social structural analysis to help move the needle on these diseases.
0: Rupa, as you've been speaking, it's clear that much of your work revolves around decolonizing medicine. And this word carries so much and is often used in many different contexts. So I'm wondering if you could share with us what this means, not as a metaphor, but in practice as it pertains to medicine, as well as how this makes medicine accessible to all and forces us to explore the ways in which we have gone about legitimizing Western medicine and basically delegitimizing everything else.
2: Right. So I think that part of that decolonization is removing the imperial structure of medicine. So a physician trained in Western medicine is really good at certain things. And we're really bad at other things. Like we have very limited understanding of, of how the mind and body interact. We have very little understanding of how social structures impact illness. We have very little understanding of how cosmologies, like people's understanding of who they are and why they're sick and what medicine means and how they get well, that these are things that have profound and subtle effects on the body. We have very little understanding of how plant medicines work to support health and how traditional medicines work to support health, traditional medicines from around the world. And so- that being said, I think if you think of colonialism as a system where power is centralized for the purpose of exploiting resources to concentrate the profits of those resources in the hands of very few people, often pulling wealth away from the communities, like extracting that wealth off to like some remote location. The power in that system is not within the hands of, obviously, those who are colonized, the vast majority. If you look at the wealth inequality that has been really driven through neoliberal policy around the world, but especially you see it here in the United States, very profoundly here in the Bay Area, that's it's the same structure. Colonialism isn't simply just brown and black people being oppressed by white people around the world. It's happening within societies. It's happening, it's happening all over us, all around us. And so decolonizing is really, to me, I see it as a system of decentralizing that power, of localizing that power, and reconnecting those things that had been divided and conquered. And for me, that really is reconnecting ourselves to the earth, ourselves to each other, and ourselves inside our bodies, like understanding who we are, and what medicines work for us and what medicines don't. And I think that science and Western medicine have given us a lot and should be used. I'm not at all someone who's willing or interested in throwing away those powerful tools that can be available to us. I also believe that there are other modalities that are you know, equally powerful in different contexts and sometimes in the same context, and that those things should be integrated and really brought to bear on how people are
0: able to heal. Thank you for that, Rupa. Now, I know that many of us are familiar with the horrors of our current healthcare model, given that over half of all Americans struggle with healthcare costs. So, I'd like to transition into a conversation on medical debt and the for profit sector of medicine. Perhaps you can begin by sharing the pervasiveness of the for profit sector of medicine. Or why you think there is such an aversion to enacting mass healthcare reform, despite the reality that our medical system is devoted to profit above anything else?
2: We have been divided. We have been divided and conquered in our minds, and in, in, in the space of our imagination. So when I was in medical school at Georgetown University, and I was in an ethics class. And I raised my hand and I said, does anyone else here see an ethical problem with being involved in a medical system that is for profit? And everyone turned and looked at me like, who is this person from California? <laughs> right? And I, I realized like, no, that is actually a central core belief for me is that if you are making a profit off of people's suffering, you are involved in very tricky unsavory business. And so the very issue of you know providing people with such a basic need which is to be able to see a doctor or a nurse a healthcare provider when people need it and to be able to see someone to help them maintain their wellness and their lives this to me should not be a for profit industry this should be a service a public service and so i have seen many families across all walks of life And from all sides of the political spectrum, run into medical bankruptcy when someone got really sick and they're in the hospital for six months or they're in a nursing home for three years and they just, their family goes bankrupt. It is the number one cause of bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy in the United States, which to me is, is criminal that we have a society that is so wealthy and cannot, Managed to find a way to take care of its own people. And so I am a big fan of Medicare for All. I'm very excited that I just got appointed by Governor Newsom to sit as a commissioner on this Healthy California for All commission, which is to find a way to bring universal health care to all of California. And so I have a very deep belief that we can do this. We have to restructure our priorities. But I think that it is something that all people deserve. All people deserve it.
0: Mm, Rupa, I absolutely agree that all people deserve healthcare. It's ridiculous that when our people are trying to heal from an injury or illness, they also have to deal with the stress of debt. I mean, how are people supposed to heal well with the stress and the inflammation and all that it brings? It's insanity. It's just a really insane system. And... Well, anyways, before I go down that rabbit hole, um, I I want to go back to this presentation that I revisited that you gave at Bioneers in 2017 where you discussed the free community clinic where you helped support at Standing Rock. And you shared how the space for the clinic was radically different than what we're used to. The exam rooms were big enough to fit a whole family. There was to be a ceremonial space, a children's space, an elder's space, and classrooms all within the clinic. And this got me thinking about what it would look like if we centered health in our national dialogue. So I'm curious to ask... What do you think society would look like if the pursuit of health was the foundation of our organizing?
2: Well, I think we would not be spending as much money on the military, and that would actually free up a lot of budget to do some very exciting things. I think if we centered health and wellness, we would not allow the toxic pollution we do allow right now. Basically, right now, industry runs our public health in this country. Industry dictates what the public is exposed to, what the legal limits are of exposures. Lawmakers are in the pockets of these industries, which I've seen here in our own Oakland. You know, people who are apparently progressive candidates are being supported by the same polluters. You know, the second largest air polluter in in the Bay Area is the AB&I Foundry. And so these corporations are buying off our politicians. That should be illegal the health of the people and the wellness of all people should be our guiding light and principles and the health of the earth and the health of the soils and the health of the water. And so these things are things that I would say that indigenous peoples around the world know and our California tribal people know. And so I, I would love to see you know a way where we would prioritize that as our guiding light and really shape everything around that because then our cities would become more livable public transportation would be free because why should it not be i mean it's ridiculous that we have more billionaires per square foot in california than anywhere on planet earth and we can't even get enough you know funding to get public transportation covered so people don't have to drive their cars imagine what that would do for fossil fuel use but we don't do that because we allow those industries so we allow the google buses to run through san francisco and completely change you know, fuel the housing crisis, essentially. We allow these, you know, corporate buses and corporations to dictate how public life will be. It would be amazing to have health be that guiding
0: light instead. I'm thinking about some of the incredibly harmful and abusive parts of Western medicine, especially its history of involuntary testing and forced sterilization. In some ways, it seems like the medical field hasn't been forced to reckon with these injustices because it is such a vital field that we are almost all dependent on. So I'm wondering if you could discuss what you think proper reparations from the medical community should look like.
2: Yes. So medicine has been used used as a tool of empire, you know, since the beginning of the colonial project in Africa in Asia and here in the Americas um, to the indigenous peoples. Absolutely there needs to be reparations and accountability because that violence is a part of our our history. And when you look at the current dynamics within the medical institutions and you see how medical racism still exists, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it's criminal. And I don't think that if we do not contend with our past, there's no way we can heal our present or go into the future with any different outcomes. So, absolutely, medicine has been weaponized against oppressed peoples. And we need to repair that and be accountable to that and change it because those systems are still in place. You know, it might not be happening the same way the forced sterilization of Indigenous women performed by doctors of the IHS in the United States up until the 1970s. That is not happening today, but that that system was never held to account for the violence, the eugenics and the violence that was practiced by licensed physicians. So absolutely, we need to be accountable and we need to repair. And that's where, you know, Western medicine as a practitioner of Western medicine with a eye for decolonizing. For me, it's always, you know, I I hold my training with a great deal of respect and also a degree of skepticism to try to understand the best way and the best thing I can do for a particular patient.
0: And as we're talking about reparations, I'm curious what these reparations would actually look like. What would tangible forms of reparations be?
2: Oh God, how do you repair testing on someone without their knowledge. I mean, that's like, that's like Nuremberg trials, you know, that's the the stuff of Nazi Germany. How do you make repairs for that? I don't have a sense of what that looks like. I think for California natives, I would love to see rematriation of land and sacred sites. I would love to see indigenous people in charge of any industry and development in California. I'm um, having the capacity to veto anything that we do and the capacity to lead. So I think that, you know, reparations would take its form with every different group that has been harmed. Would need to take a different form with every group. But I think that it I think the first part to that is acknowledgment that this has happened. And that is something that I would love to see happen. And now that there are more women of color in positions of power in institutions of medicine, these dialogues are coming
0: up, which is exciting. I really agree with you that acknowledgement is a good place to begin and that there will never be a one-size-fits-all approach or solution. Yeah. Now... I'd like to turn towards your work with the Do No Harm Coalition and your commitment towards chronicling what the absence of justice does to community health. As I understand it, the coalition was formed in response to ongoing police violence in San Francisco and the 17-day hunger strike by the Frisco Five. There are so many threads to pick up here, but perhaps we can start at the beginning. What are the long-term physical and mental health outcomes of police violence? And why is it necessary to discuss police violence in context to public health?
2: Well, the sixth leading cause of death for African-American males now between the age of 20 and 35 is police violence. So it's up there in the top 10 of things that kill young Black men in the United States. So I feel like anything that is up in the top 10 deserves special attention. Not only that, it is a top killer of young Black men in this country. But the, the process by which justice is either attained or not attained for families after that person is killed really exposes, kind of widens the wound. So if the wound is the killing and there's no justice, that wound is not healed. It's actually widened. And there is, it becomes an erosion of the very fabric of civic trust, which is needed for good governance and an operational society. And so the wound to the social body when there is a police killing, when someone who's entrusted with public safety is actually terrorizing the public and that it's happening in such an overtly racist fashion, discriminatory fashion, then that institution that is doing that harming, it needs to be brought into proper alignment with the, with the goals and the vision of our society. And so with police killings, I've seen firsthand how people are traumatized and how the process of trying to seek justice in a system that was never created for the justice of black and brown people, how that frustrates their healing and compounds the trauma, it re-traumatizes them. And so it feels like a very important issue for the healing of our society.
0: Capitating all the flies In relationship to state-sponsored violence and the long-term trauma it creates, I'm thinking about the ongoing crisis at the border and the daily terror inflicted by ICE and Border Patrol. In this sense, it feels crucial to situate family as medicine. Can you speak to the importance of family reunification and how ICE and our current immigration policy is a clear example of why we must abolish these systems altogether, not merely reform them?
2: Absolutely. So, the criminalization of immigration is a, is a recent phenomenon. So, we didn't always just pick up people and lock them up or separate them from their children. And really, this grew in the Obama era, and that's important to point out because it's not like oh, we have this evil man, Trump. He, of course, is furthering a white nationalist agenda that has been, you know, brought forth and really exposed in his henchman, Stephen Miller. But this policy of criminalizing immigration is really something that came out under Obama, who was known as the deporter-in-chief, who deported far more people than Bush one or Bush Part II. And so I think that it's, it's really important to recognize that this system of violence is something that has been going on for a while. It's now just pushed to a head because of the, um, the white nationalism that is underpinning a lot of these moves and then the expansion of these programs. I absolutely agree that immigration should be decriminalized. I I think these camps should be shut down. I think they're an abhorrent to our nation's history and to our progress as, as people. And I also think that these migrations are going to get more intense as climate change becomes more impactful. And those groups that will be hit the hardest are the poorest. And those people are going to move. They're, they're going to move to become secure in their ability to find food, water, and shelter. And so it is a good time to prepare ourselves for this movement that is coming. And it's already, it's already coming. Um, so I definitely support the decriminalization of migration. It's a natural phenomenon that's been happening for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And to find a way to you know absorb and and really work with people, and work with other countries that are struggling. Um, So instead of being involved in meddling with Central American countries' power structures, um, to really let those countries thrive. You know, most people I know from Mexico who are here prefer to be in Mexico. But when our government is involved in drugs and um, arms trafficking, it doesn't help that society be stable. And that is something I've noticed as an agenda item of the United States in foreign policy is that it really does not want to see brown and black countries thrive. And all of the countries that we are bombing currently and for the last 20 years have been brown and black countries. So that this legacy of racism, of imperialist, racist agenda of the United States is something that's being perpetuated You know, right now. It's not something that was just there in the founding of this country where indigenous children were stripped from their parents up until the 1970s and taken away so that they could be grown up in white assimilated situations. This phenomenon is happening today. It's not something that just happened 30 years ago or 200 years ago. This is an ongoing project. And that's why it's important to recognize that, you know, if we can't dismantle these things as, as people, they will continue to recreate trauma and, and inflammation.
0: Rupa, I want to read a quote of yours. One of the central challenges of health disparities research is using the language and methodology of the oppressor to document the experience of the oppressed. Do we need data to tell us just how traumatized POC are by police violence? How does the act of doing that study reinforce the very structure of white supremacy that drives this violence and trauma for POC? Can we develop new methodologies to liberate ourselves from the limitations of Western pedagogical structures as we work for the collective liberation of all beings from systems of oppression? This question invites the radical imagination into the spaces of healing, for I believe it is through the realm of the imaginary we will find the paths to healing, which has been deeply divided. Mm, Rupa, that is such a beautiful quote, and I really resonate with how you're weaving the imaginary realm into the healing path. So thank you for speaking so clearly to this. And I know that much of your work is indirect acknowledgement of the ways in which white supremacy and colonialism are ever present in the medical field. So I'd like to talk about the challenges of addressing health disparities, particularly in terms of colonial methodologies. How are you imagining a framework that mitigates re-traumatization both in terms of research and care.
2: Yes, I think that that's that's like the that's like my life work. I feel like, you know, right now we're imagining a project in partnership with poverty scholars. So homeless folks who are developing their own paths of homefulness with indigenous women here in the urban environment who are rematriating land with formerly incarcerated people who are learning organic farming techniques as a livelihood, and with undocumented folks who are learning farming as well. And one of the questions we have to, that we're thinking about together is, you know, if you can give access to food training, how to make your own food and land, what impact does that have on health? And so in that question, which could have really powerful data that could be used to drive policy, that question is something that has to be driven and inquired and, and developed by these people who are asking the question. And so instead of being a research that I do that are like, hey, I want to study your bodies... For these things that I want to know, it's more of a sitting together in, in in a space of inquiry to say what can we know here, and how can we know it, and what are the ways of knowing that are important to us in our different capacities and in our different ways of coming here together. And so, what's created is a real deep space of solidarity and inquiry into how to use different tools that might be available to us how to rip apart tools that feel violent and intrusive and reframe them or reshape them into something that has a more liberatory energy to it. And so this is a space of really active, creative engagement. There's a wonderful book called Decolonizing Methodologies, which is about research in indigenous communities led by indigenous investigators. And that's a very inspiring book. And then there's the work of Tiny Garcia Poverty Scholarship. So she wrote this book, Poor People Led Theory, Art, Words and Tears Across Mama Earth. And that book is also very inspiring for seeing, you know, what are ways we can really partner and be in service and accompany groups who are historically struggling to uplift, help uplift them in their struggles, help participate in. Moving the needle on the things that they need, that they identify, and so you know I, I have trouble in the health disparity space because it feels there it becomes an, a morbid fascination in the and how our bodies are being violated by the structures that are crushing them, and I'm I'm not interested in that morbid voyeurism. Um, I'm interested in you know radically redistributing power and resources, and so anyway. Um, I can use my positionality to do that. I will.
0: Thank you for your reflection, Rupa. We've been talking about these darker areas, and I'd like to bring in some light specifically to the importance of building community-based medicine as an antidote to structural violence. How do you define community medicine, and what does it look like in terms of practices and relationship?
2: I think it depends on the community, but it's definitely medicine that is coming up organically in a community, requested by a community, developed by a community, put together with resources by reaching across to people who might be you know adjacent to that community. But I think it's medicine that is derived through those relationships rather than something uh, uh, like a doctor or a nurse comes and administers. And it's the medicine of relating and relating in a different way. And so I think that that relationships, those webs of relationships that we can reestablish and reattach have a much more profound healing impact than any, you know, imposed structure that a health system brings to your town. So I think that, you know, doctors and nurses and health workers can be extremely effective and helpful, but they should really be in service of the agenda that a community is setting and not showing up with their own agenda. And so that really is like a, you know, it's a it's a bottom-up philosophy of driving health change. and And I think that different communities know what they need. They really know what they need. And so our job is to show up and be present and listen and then work together in that space of the imagination to create what needs to happen, to create new models, to create... New alliances and partnerships, and to bring voices to the table that haven't been a part of the dialogue around health that really should be, and so you know to be as wide in our net of what wellness and health really means.
0: Mm, I love hearing that. I just had an interview with Dr. Kyle White yesterday, and we were speaking about the necessity of trust building and relationship building, and consent building, and transparency, and Just many times when outsiders come in, even with good intentions, it can really disrupt a community and the relationship building takes a lot longer. And I think that's why people opt out of wanting to do that when they think they have a good idea or they think they know what to do because they just want to implement their idea rather than taking the time to actually build trust to find out what will be best for the people on the ground.
2: Right. I mean, it's a very like Christian colonial missionary posture is to show up and try to save people. And that's what's happening right now in the climate space, which I find kind of like bittersweet and sad and scary. It's that, you know, we're here at the precipice of human existence being threatened by climate catastrophe as the end expression of the colonial project. So if you go around the world and conquer everybody who knows how to live on their lands in a balanced, ecological, sustainable way, and then impose structures, um, different religion, different structures, different industries on those lands that can then extract the resources from those lands... You can't live in balance. It's not balance. It's, an, it's a highly imbalanced system. And so we are here precisely because of European colonization. This is the end expression of the colonial project is climate collapse. The end expression of imperialism is climate change. And so the people who are positing the solutions right now as they're gathered in Europe, in Madrid, they're European. They're largely the global north. And it's, you know, it's striking to me to think that, the, that a system of thought that would lead us here would never be the one to actually solve the problem because the problem is a system of thought. And so how do we empower those people who knew how to be on this in their places to really seize the agenda of how we are together here on this earth? Because clearly this way hasn't worked. It doesn't work. It drives illness. On every part of our on the planet and our bodies and between us, and so we need to be hearing from those voices that are already speaking. They've been speaking for six hundred years about how to do this differently, and so I really follow those voices, and I I'm excited to see them rising. <laughs>
0: I recently came across a really beautiful interview with you that focused on your band, Rupa and the April Fishes. And in this interview, you're quoted as saying, quote, I realized that what music is, it's the original medicine, end quote. And as someone who is both a doctor and a musician, I can see how the common narrative might be to juxtapose these against one another. But this proclamation of music as medicine is so good. So I'd love if you could share with us more about the foundation of your music and medicine and the importance of the revolution being one that sings and dances for ourselves and each other. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that anything, any big lasting social change has to come out of joy. I don't think that lasting social change comes out of violence or comes out of imperialism that, I think that that's all temporary. But the things that last are things where there's a balance and a, and a dance and joy. And music for me is joy. And it's a way that I can express some of the heavy and hard things I see when I'm sitting in the hospital with patients witnessing the things that I witness and turn it into something hopeful and heartful and healing. And so music has this powerful alchemy that way to shift our nervous system's vibration to resonate in our bodies, to move our bodies, to elevate our perspectives and to make us feel joy. And so I think ultimately, you know, even though we're talking about these really heavy things, because they are heavy, underneath the challenges and, and kind of pushing the agendas, is joy, is a a desire to see people thrive, a recognition of what that looks like when people are in harmony, when people are harmonizing with their environment and other beings in their environment, what that looks and feels like and tastes like, that beauty, that joy, that power. So that to me is really, you know, inspiring. And I married a farmer for that reason, an amazing man who's a beautiful farmer. And the way he dances with the earth and the plants is just beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I can see his joy in how he tends the earth. And so that really is the way that music heals me.
0: Mm, Thank you, Rupa, for sharing some of those personal pieces and Yeah, I think that the revolution needs the healing of joy. What's happening right now and what has been happening is heavy and devastating. And I was with a dear mentor, Joanna Macy, and she was at Cougar Mountain for summer solstice. And we were sitting around the campfire and she was speaking a poem. And uh, I don't want to botch this, but I, I probably will. So don't quote me on this one. But it was something like, will there be singing in the end times? Yes, there will be singing about the end times or or something like that. Or will there be singing when the dark times come? You know, that kind of, um, yeah, that type of message. And I thought that was so beautiful. And I really do feel that finding joy and community is necessary for our survival. So yeah, but um. Speaking of survival, I, I do want to bring up a topic that I know you're familiar with that is of climate health justice. And surprisingly, this is something that For the Wild has yet to explicitly discuss. So I wonder if you could share more about the urgency of this realm and what it means to work in the pursuit of climate health justice. What does this mean in terms of protecting and repairing our water, air, and soil?
2: Right, our comments. So- The people who have been hit first, worst, and hardest by climate change already are the same people who have been oppressed through colonization. So the black, brown, poor, indigenous around the world. And it's already happening. And if you think of climate change, for Native Californians here, the climate has been changing since you know, the 1700s since the Spanish arrival. When native people were taken off their lands and the soil was degraded through grazing, the grasses changed um, from perennial grasses to annual grasses. Tule elk were slaughtered. The grizzly bears were slaughtered. The antelope were slaughtered. The waterways were rerouted. For this new agriculture, Spain became Mexico, became California, the gold rush, the bounty days, the wholesale genocide of California native people, there's been climate change for a couple hundred years. And now it has accelerated. And why I call that also climate change is because, you know, they set up a, a net basically at the mouth of the Sacramento Delta and just captured all the salmon and canned it and within like five years... The salmon um, population was decimated in the early 1900s. With the loss of the salmon, the bear didn't have that phosphorus to eat and then to send out into our forests. And so you lost this natural phosphorus pump that brought all these nutrients in from the ocean up into our deltas, out into our forests. And then the grizzly bears died and then the, um, or were killed, and then the berries, the highway of berries that was running through California were gone, the tule elk gone. So we lost all this very complex interplay of food systems and then microbial systems and soil microbial systems that drove an an incredibly stable system here in California for over 30,000 years. And so within 200 years, you can't drink the water. The air is toxic. The soil has been poisoned. And, and people are dying of cancer and, you know, young people have their colons cut out at incredible rates with inflammatory bowel disease. People are developing diabetes, they're depressed, they're suicidal. Um, and all of these things are connected. And so you can really look, you know, sometimes people have a hard time conceptualizing climate justice. You can just look at environmental justice and racial justice and justice for indigenous people. So, When someone says, well, how do I get involved in climate justice? You go, show up the next time a black person is shot by the police. Show up and shut down that city hall. Because that violence towards that black person is the same violence that removed the indigenous people from this land. And those people who were on this land knew how to run this land, knew how to be on this land. And so if we're not connecting those those things, we're missing the whole point. And it's shocking to me that you'll see throngs of white people show up for the environmental movement. None of them show up when someone's shot by the police. None of them showed up for Jamaica, um, who was just shot by SFPD like two weekends ago in San Francisco, who's sitting in the ICU on his last breath, 24-year-old. And so that to me shows that the, the people are not making the necessary connections they need to make. They're not understanding actually how we got here. So once white folks are able to understand that the violent systems of white supremacy, which are actually recreated in the environmental movement, which are recreated in our movements for justice, need to be seriously held to task and, and shifted so that that power structure, so that people understand you put your power behind anything that is damaging and degrading the people, the voiceless, whether that's the water, that's the young black man shot by the police, the indigenous people that are being pushed off their lands, The people who can't speak up when there's like um, a toxic pollutant, you know, in in Richmond or, you know, the refineries or, you know, here in East Oakland, but people don't make those connections. They're out there now to save the world without saving their own neighborhoods, which is, you know, short-sighted and kind of fits with that whole savior complex that brought us here in the first place. And so how do we awaken our great white sleeping friends who um, are committed to justice without actually showing up. So I would love to see them shut down, you know, City Hall the next time someone gets shot. And then I would say, now we're ready for the climate justice movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. I love those direct, tangible asks. Thank you for planting those seeds in our imagination.
2: Yeah. So I emailed the, the woman who organizes the San Francisco Women's March and she said, Rupak, will you please bring your organization to the march this January? Or oh, smart, I can't remember if it was March, whenever it was, and I said, "You know, I have yet to see you know women in their pussy hats showing up to City Hall when someone's shot by police. When I see that, I'm sure I can mobilize all our people to show up for the Women's March. But I don't see that, and I haven't seen that, and I still haven't seen that. And so, what can be alienating is when there's this call that we all need to get behind, we do all need to get behind the climate movement, but to fail to understand that that movement is the same movement as um, fighting police terror, that's that's sort of the, the piece that needs to be
0: connected. I'd be remiss if we didn't speak about gentrification and the health crisis, which is something that I think is not talked about nearly enough. But I know that this is an issue that Do No Harm Coalition is tackling is this gentrification as a public health crisis. So as someone who has experienced the gentrification of the Bay firsthand, how is displacement linked to community health outside the obvious impacts of houselessness, et cetera?
2: Oh, so many ways. Um, So when an area is gentrified, let's say like the Mission District of San Francisco, there are whole um, economic ecosystems that have developed stably over 50 years. That become degraded. Um, So, for example, young Latino kids going through the mission might not get a a loan for going to college, a traditional loan or financial aid from a school or from a bank or from a federal institution. They might get loans through their community. So the community pushes forward its youth through long-term loving engagement and connections. Now that that community is, you know, far flung, um, you don't have that epicenter of engagement anymore. So it erodes the kind of civic life that has developed. And that was a safety net, whether it's for healthcare, like someone goes through a healthcare issue, an illness, and a community is around to stabilize and help get that person back on their feet. Through gentrification and the, the moving in of wealthier white and Asian groups to the mission, You don't have that same kind of system anymore. It's less resilient. And that impacts all sorts of people's health, their mental health, their um, capacity to stay in their homes longer if they're elderly, to stay in their homes in a safe way, and um, their ability to live and work in their communities. So it has far-reaching effects. It's also, you know, there's many, many areas where gentrification has been shown to be bad for health outcomes. So I think it is a very important, important problem.
0: Uh, Thank you for speaking to gentrification so clearly, as I'm sure many of our listeners are feeling the pressures of this in their communities. And I just really love how much your work, if not all of it, reiterates the importance of root cause analysis. Which is something that feels so close to us at For the Wild, you know, sitting with the ultimate truth that nothing will change unless we address the root of the problem, not the symptoms. Ah, <sighs> yes. So in closing, Rufa, I'd love to open the conversation to anything you'd like to share or what you see as realistic. A more media system change, or perhaps you could share what you've learned from medicine and music when it comes to shedding our identities as consumers and participating in the world in a meaningful way, or more meaningful ways, or, or even if you'd be willing, you could share a little bit about your forthcoming book with Raj Patel. Uh, basically, I just like to leave the space open to however you'd like to close this conversation.
2: Oh, thank you, and um, thank you for inviting me to talk with you. Um, I would just like to say that this is an extremely exciting moment in human history. We have an opportunity right now to imagine other ways and imagine them into being and to create new partnerships that maybe we didn't think of before and to invite healing that is long overdue and to invite social paradigms into our imagination that that had been off in the periphery or thought, oh that's impossible. We can't do that. It's it's a time to bring those things to the table and to bring new relationships to the table and to learn new tools of humility being on stolen native territory and to learn new ways of relating to each other or maybe reawaken old ways of relating to each other. And so I am excited for the future. And I'm excited for what the young generation is bringing out right now. And I'm excited for the awakening together to really seize power back into the hands of the people for the improvement of our health and for imagining kinder, more awakened, more inspiring society.
0: Mm. Oh, goodness, Rupa, thank you so much for this profound conversation. You are such a Warrioress for our times, and I really appreciate the way you show up in the world and all you do for our collective survival. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was from Rupa and the April Fishes. I'd like to take a moment and thank our spectacular podcast production team. Aidan McRae, Andrew Stores, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekrem, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and Melanie Younger. Before we say goodbye, I'd like to make a few shout outs. One, if you want to support this podcast production team in bringing you this content week in and week out, Please make a donation at patreoncom wild. Also, if you haven't rated us on iTunes, please do so as it really helps build our community. And lastly, sign up for our newsletter on our website at forthewild.world. All right folks, until next week.